I think we can all agree the current political moment is fraught. But how does it compare to the other fraught political moments in history? It felt for a time in part of that decade like everything was falling apart. Young people against old people, anti-war violence, peace movement. I'm former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara, and this week, presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin joins me on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet. We talk about difficult times in America's history and how its people overcame them. The episode is out now. Search and follow Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts. In the 1980s, a new disturbing trend horrified Americans and sent parents into a panic. We are trying to locate a lost child by the name of Aton Pate. He is only six years old. He weighs 50 pounds, 40 inches tall, blonde hair, and blue eyes. One moment, Adam is playing video games at a Sears store. The next minute, he's gone, vanished. In Iowa, the disappearance of a 12-year-old paperboy spawns a groundbreaking search and rumors of a sinister conspiracy. First was the disappearance of Aton Pates from a busy New York City street in 1979. Then was the disappearance of Adam Walsh, who was abducted from a department store in Florida and whose decapitated head was later found in a drainage canal in 1981. Now, let's set something straight. A lot of this panic was misplaced. The truth is, instances of stranger kidnappings were then, and remain today, very uncommon. But the point is, as those clips we just played illustrate, in the public's mind in the 80s, it was a real fear. There were made-for-TV movies about kidnapped children. The words, stranger danger, entered everyday Americans' lives. By 1984, the National Child Safety Council decided something had to be done. And their solution? This infamous 1980s campaign reported here on Good Morning America. Now in the Chicago area, a milk company is printing photos of missing children on milk cartons. The police even told us that they are now following up a lead right now on yeah, one of the pictures. I've heard that. All we can do is hope. The first cardboard cartons to feature the faces of missing children were printed in Des Moines, Iowa, where two teenage paper boys had gone missing. But quickly, as that Good Morning America clip shows, it went national. It's estimated that up to five billion milk cartons with missing children on them were printed during the program's run. The cartons were so ubiquitous that for many kids of the 1980s, and I can completely relate to this, the faces of missing children on milk cartons became a haunting part of every bowl of breakfast cereal. But as popular and well-known as they became, the fact is that rarely did they lead to the finding of a missing child or arrest of their abductor. In fact, in most articles and research papers about the program, they only mention one notable success from it. A girl named Bonnie, who had been kidnapped by her mother and stepfather as a toddler and recognized herself in a picture on a milk carton one day. And also, it seemed that rarely did the cartons feature the faces of black or brown children. It was a fact not lost on communities of color in America. Here, comedian Eddie Griffin joked about it in one of his stand-up specials. Because black people, we watch our kids. I'm talking to you, white folks. I'm tired of seeing y'all kids on my milk cart. You know, you're just trying to pull some milk on your cereal, 
And it's always that little white face with the caption underneath it. Have you seen me? Of course, black and Latino children were going missing too. They just rarely made the news. In 1987, Texas saw two young girls, one white and one Latina, go missing within days of each other. But the response to their cases could not have been more different. And it would be up to the Chicano squad to get justice for one of them. I'm Crispel Alonso. I'm a comedian and activist. And this is a piece of history I can almost guarantee you've never heard before. The story of a young band of Latino police officers thrust into an impossible, unwinnable situation by a police department with their back against the wall. With little training and even fewer resources, they were assigned to solve the city's toughest crimes. From Frequency Machine and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Chicano Squad. In esta ciudad. Back in October of 1987, all of the officers in the Chicano squad took turns working on the weekends. One Sunday morning, it was Raymond Gonzalez and Jose Vera's turn. They were hoping for a slow shift. They'd been working tirelessly. Raymond was born and raised in the Latino neighborhoods of Houston. My parents were born here in the States, uh, born in Houston, Texas. I got four brothers and two sisters. Growing up, Raymond was a good kid. I consider myself a good student, you know. I didn't start any trouble. School was important to Raymond, who had bigger dreams of what he wanted to be when he grew up, and none of them involved a badge. My dad only had a fifth grade education, so it was hard for him to find a job and he paint cars and sand cars. I wanted to work in an office was a time. Despite staying out of trouble, Raymond still had his share of negative run-ins with the Houston Police Department. One night, he borrowed his father's car to go to a high school dance. On the way home, just a few blocks from his house, the car died. Harris County deputies approached, rapping on the window with a flashlight. He told me to get out of the car, threw me on top of the hood, he was just driving home from a dance, Raymond told them. They searched my car, and they found some chains in my car. But it's my dad's car, not my car. And they started kind of yelling at me and telling me, all these Mexicans, you know, y'all were gangs. And so I, I didn't say anything. Eventually, they told him to leave, to go home. Instead of just saying, hey, you, you're broken down, can I give you a ride home? I just assumed because of the chain I belonged to a gang. Raymond couldn't have been further from it. He was studious and played football for MacArthur High, along with his future partner, Joe Salvera. The two had become teammates and good friends over the years. When Joe was drafted during the Vietnam War, he asked Raymond to join him so they could be together under the U.S. Marines' buddy program. We graduated in 1970. In less than a year, he's in another country fighting in the jungles. I mean, you're a teenager now. Raymond didn't take Joe up on his offer. He had landed an office job and was wearing that tie he dreamed about as a kid. But on his drive to work every day, Raymond passed an ad asking people to join HPD. And the more he saw it, the more the idea stuck. One day, Raymond picked up the phone and called the number, 
Before he knew it, he got in, passed the academy, and by 1972, he was a Houston police officer. Just one year later, fresh off his tour in Vietnam, his good friend Joe Salvera joined him, making HPD in 1973. At first, no one in Raymond's life understood. Well, my dad could not believe I became a police officer first. He said, Raymond, you're just too nice. After both Raymond and Joe had earned reputations for being hard workers in patrol, they found themselves side by side trying to solve Houston Spanish-speaking homicides as members of the Chicano squad. Joe was one of the squad's founding members, and Ray was the first new member to join. They were rarely off the clock, despite both men's growing families. When I first got there to homicide, I don't think I took vacation for two years. I mean, I think I worked every day. It was busy. Joe Salvera married and had one son, his junior. Raymond also married and had several children, but work and life proved difficult to balance. His wife eventually left him. Their children stayed with Raymond, and his mother moved in to help. My mom was you know, saying, son, you're never home. I mean, you come home late, you take a shower, and then 3 o'clock in the morning they call you, and you leave again. One Sunday morning, Raymond and Joe walked in, ready for their shift. First, they checked for any messages. Nothing came in from Saturday night. Man, so that's good. No overnight murders to follow up on. But before they could refill their coffee mugs, the phone rang, and a detective from the Juvenile Investigations Unit was on the line. The Juvenile Unit handled any case in which a child or young person ended up in trouble, missing, or even a suspect. Juvenile said, we have a kidnapping, we got a patrol unit out there now. But no one from the juvenile office could communicate with the parents who'd called the police. The juvenile office was out there, they don't speak Spanish. Can you go out there and help? I said, sure. Although the Chicano squad was part of the homicide unit, whenever there was a victim of other serious crimes with a Spanish last name, they got a call. Even if the individuals involved spoke English, the squad ended up getting assigned to tons of other cases no one else wanted to work. So now, when the life of a kid with a Latino surname was on the line, there was no question. The Chicano squad needed to be called. Houston was the fourth most populous city in the U.S. at the time. And Harris County, where it was located, was home to a growing Latino population that would soon rank as the fourth largest of the country, just behind L.A. and Miami. By the fall of 1987, Houston's Latino population was well into a decade-long growth spurt. Immigrants, whether they were documented or undocumented, were easy prey for criminals. Cecil Mosqueda. That's how the crook thought. They said, hey, we're going to rob these guys. We're going to kill them. You know why? Because they're not going to report it. They're immigrants. The Chicano squad had been working for eight years to establish a connection between HPD and these neighborhoods, and finally, they were making gains. Raymond Gonzalez, for one, had learned the importance of getting out of the office and spending time in the community, even when there weren't crimes to investigate. I just said, you know what, I'm going to go talk to them. Whether it be the people on the corner streets, and they say, hey, what did I do wrong? I said, you're not doing anything wrong. I just want to say, hey, I'm Officer Gonzalez. I'll be patrolling here. So you get to know them, you know. Because if something happens, they're your eyes on the community. But there was something else about the squad that allowed people to trust them 
And it had as much to do with what the squad didn't do as what it did. The Chicano squad didn't do immigration. We're not there to put anybody in jail. We're just there, public servants. Either you're illegal or not, we're here for you. When the squad had begun their work in 1979, a huge hurdle they had to overcome was a valid fear most Latino immigrants had, that landing on HPD's radar in any way could lead to themselves or someone they loved being deported. There were few people outside of their immediate neighborhoods whom immigrants could turn to for help while drug dealers and cartels made war zones of their communities and other criminals preyed on their vulnerabilities. Kidnappings, unfortunately, were common. We worked so many kidnappings. We had a lot of coyote smuggling operations. So therefore, we became king of the kidnappers. Coyote kidnappings. Typically, they would begin with someone's desperate plea to get into the United States from south of the Texas border. Many pay smugglers called coyotes hundreds of dollars to sneak them across the border. The coyotes would shuttle them from one safe house to another on late night buses and trains and van rides and horseback and boat trips until the immigrants were on American soil. It was a dangerous, risky business for the immigrants. They often fail in their attempts, but the motto, La Migra, the immigration, is always try, try again. Despite the danger, as you just heard in that clip from the McNeil Lair report on PBS NewsHour, the need for some of these hopeful immigrants was so dire that even the high probability of failure didn't stop them from trying. While the immigrants' families might have negotiated and settled upon a fee and paid for the Coyotes' service at the beginning back in Mexico, the deal often changed when the journey was complete. Sometimes the smugglers, los coyotes, would hold the clients hostage and demand that the families fork over more money. Money they didn't have. Talking about this really hits home for me. I grew up in a border town, and I know a lot of people that have used coyotes. People would risk their lives just to have a chance here. And they never knew what kind of coyote they were going to get. We got involved because once a victim called in and said, look, they got my aunt and they're going to cut her feet off because they expect X amount of money. Well, when they threw in the factor that they were going to injure the individual, that's where homicide got involved. Now it, it is no longer a coyote deal. It became life or death. But on October 4th, 1987, when Raymond and Joe picked up the phone, there were no coyotes in this latest kidnapping case. No. This case was something entirely different. More after the break. It was Saturday the day before Raymond and Joe came into work on that Sunday morning hoping for an uneventful shift. 24-year-old Marina Reyes was waiting on her husband Sergio to get home from work. The couple lived in Houston's Fifth Ward, a predominantly African-American and Latino neighborhood. My dad was working as a painter at the time, and he was getting off late that time, so she made dinner. It was like 11 at night. So she was waiting on him with the doors open. That was the voice of Marina's daughter, Liliana. 
When we visited the family's home, Liliana translated for her mother. Out of the darkness, a woman showed up at the front door and asked Marina Reyes, Do you speak Spanish? Entonces le pregunto, si, hablo español. She's like, yeah. So she invited her in. My dad had came in at the same time. So they sat down. The woman, whose name was Ajdi, had three burns on her forearm, small round wounds. She explained there were cigarette burns. Everyone in her gang had them. But she'd left the gang back in Mexico and escaped to come to Texas. She was there all alone. She was homeless. Please, the young woman begged, have mercy. It was late at night and Marina couldn't turn the young woman away. My dad didn't feel a good vibe from her. And my mom asked him, please, like, just let her stay for the night. For Marina, it hadn't been so long since she herself came to Texas with nothing and relied on the help of her family and strangers to establish roots and start her life. So she kind of like fell for her, you know, because she wasn't from here. After dinner, Marina and Sergio shuffled around each other in the small two-bedroom home. Ajdi would sleep in the kids' room, and they worked quietly to move their other children into their bedroom. Their cheerful 14-month-old with thick black hair lay in a crib next to the bed. Even with the woman in another bedroom and all of his kids around him, Sergio still felt uneasy. He told his wife, And then my dad told her, it's easier just to give her, just give her $5 and let her go on her way. My dad told her, like, it's just easier for us to do that than have a stranger in the house. Then my mom even told him, like, don't be so mean. Like, what can she steal from us? Sergio Reyes was so uneasy, he planned to stay up all night. But the young father of four was exhausted after a long day's work. Then, one of the couple's two boys made a noise in his sleep, waking a startled Sergio around 4 a.m. It was time for the baby's bottle, but she hadn't cried for it. He woke my dad up, like, in a panic, and then when my dad looked into the crib... The baby wasn't in her crib. The young parents jumped out of bed. Not only was their bedroom door open, but so was the kid's bedroom door and the front door. The baby was gone, and so was Ashti. But she'd just been on foot. Marina turned to Sergio. She told my dad, go look for her, like, go, go. You know, she's walking, so she can't go that far. Marina Reyes called 911. Her baby had been kidnapped, she told the operator in frantic Spanish. She needed police, fast. Patrol officers sped to the house. They found the frenzied Reyeses who tried desperately to tell them what happened. One of the patrol officers spoke just enough Spanish to work out that there had been a kidnapping. The officers needed to get their colleagues on the juvenile unit involved ASAP. But it was the weekend when units are generally light-staffed and what's more, no one in juvenile could speak Spanish. So the on-call detective called the Chicano squad. Raymond Gonzalez and Jose Vera arrived at the couple's home, and finally, the Reyeses were able to tell the officers what happened. We get there and learn that the mother had taken in this young lady. They woke up and the, and the baby was gone. Marina sobbed as she told the detectives about the woman from Mexico who had shown up at their doorstep. 
but Marina had almost no info about the woman to give them. She knew it was from Mexico, but no other information besides her first name and from Mexico. Raymond started knocking on doors to see if anyone had any information. A neighbor told him she'd seen the woman holding baby Reyes on Friday. She was holding the baby very strangely, the neighbor later told the Houston Chronicle, like it was her own child. Every case has its own set of circumstances, but all the ones that hit the Chicano squad's desk had one thing in common, a sense of urgency. Evidence disappears, witnesses move, leads evaporate, memories fade. But in kidnapping cases, there is even more pressure on detectives to work quickly. Every hour and every day that passes, the chances of finding the child alive drop dramatically. And with the clock ticking away and so little information, they knew they needed as much public attention as they could get. Nosotros somos de Chicano Squares y vamos a hacer lo más que podamos por usted. Lele told her, don't worry about nothing. We're going to do the most we can do to help you and find her. They sent faxes to every news outlet that they could, asking them to put the word out about the missing woman and baby. TV sets and radios throughout the city broadcast their descriptions, alerting people to be on the lookout for the woman, who was 5 feet 3 inches, slender at about 110 pounds, with light skin and shoulder-length light brown hair, and baby Reyes, described as having black hair, gold earrings, and weighing 28 pounds, last seen wearing a disposable diaper and wrapped in a yellow blanket with flowers on it. Critically, and this is so smart, Detectives didn't include a description of a specific birthmark. They needed a way to identify and vet the tips that came in. They enlisted a sketch artist, and soon the young woman's likeness was blasted out to the public and plastered throughout the city. We made flyers, and Joe and I went to all the truck stops. Sure, we got calls, but the wall didn't cost. Finding a homeless woman who didn't want to be found in Houston was going to be hard enough. But that was the least of their worries. Because to Raymond Gonzalez and Joe Silvera, their greater concern was that the troubled, hungry young woman was likely headed back to Mexico. And here the squad hit a limitation. Houston police could only effectively operate inside their jurisdiction with a case that was potentially going to go beyond not just that, but spill across state and even international jurisdictions, the Chicano squad officers needed federal muscle. Joe called the FBI and told her we had a kidnapping here, and it looked like it had been transported to Mexico. And the feds said, oh, well, we don't have any Hispanic people working here today. The FBI was passing on the case it would be up to the Chicano squad alone to find the missing baby and bring her home. At first, the story about baby Reyes was all over the local news. Neighbors were interviewed, experts on kidnappings weighed in, and parents held their children a little tighter. Marina and Sergio did every media interview they could as they tried to rally the entire city into looking for their missing baby. In their free time, they'd search the city themselves, always stopping by the Chicano squad's office to inquire about updates. There, Marina and Sergio would often find Raymond and Joe, 
which angered the young mother. She said, how are y'all looking for her if y'all always in here? It's not that simple, the detectives responded. Just have uh, faith that we're going to find her. And what we work on more is on people's help that they're going to call us and tell us if they see uh, her and, you know, give us a call. And that's how we get clues. If you have any information on this robbery kidnapping, call Crime Stoppers at 472-TIPS or 1-800-323-TIPS. For days, Raymond and Joe led the investigation, following up on every reasonable-sounding lead that came into the officers via the Crime Stoppers tip line or the homicide desk. It was dead end after dead end. There was no evidence, no front door security cameras, no Google, no cell phone tracking devices, barely any actual cell phones. Tips were all they had. The flyers at the gas stations had helped. Calls from truck drivers who had picked up the mysterious young woman started coming in. She would go by nothing but 18-wheelers, and all the 18-wheelers that called and reported, they did pick her up and they dropped her off. She kept on asking for money for milk for her baby. The drivers who called in seemed to always call just after they left the pair to get their next ride, leaving police one step behind. The squad followed each and every tip, but they were getting nowhere. They said, well, we saw somebody, it was a baby walking this way, but you know, we followed it, but it never turned out. Meanwhile, 11 days after baby Reyes had been kidnapped, the story of another child in danger was developing. Some 475 miles outside of Houston lies the West Texas city of Midland, in the heart of the Permian Basin, which accounts for 30% of the nation's oil production. The oil bust of the 1980s had been a huge blow to Midland, as well as the rest of the Permian Basin and the entire state of Texas. But in 1987, things had finally stabilized. It was there that another call came in to police, concerning an 18-month-old girl. The call taker listened as the panicked woman on the other end of the line described an almost unimaginable horror. Her daughter, an 18-month-old girl named Jessica, had been playing in her backyard and stumbled into an abandoned, opened water well and was trapped. All America is watching and waiting tonight, watching the little town of Midland, Texas, and waiting for rescuers to free little Jessica McClure. The 18-month-old baby has been trapped 22 feet underground for more than 56 hours now. That was ABC News anchor Bill Butel. Within a few hours of Jessica's plight making the news, it was wall-to-wall on almost every news station. And with that, the entire state and eventually the country focused on the McClure baby. Emergency responders arrived and met panicked family members. Getting the youngster out of the well wasn't going to be easy. But luckily for Jessica, the area was teeming with people who knew more about wells and drilling than anywhere else in the world. The baby's parents were poor teenagers and everyone wanted to give them a hand. A few local drillers flocked to the scene to see if they could help. Within hours, the Midland police and fire officials had come up with a plan to drill a shaft parallel to the well and then drill a tunnel across at a right angle to the well where Jessica was stuck. But the driller's tools weren't right for the job and couldn't penetrate the hard rock. They'd need a new technique, and fast. 
As news of the tot's plight spread, a local TV station switchboard was overwhelmed with calls from news outlets and people across the world. Jessica also dominated the news in Houston. At 61 Reasoner, the press room was flooded with officers who wanted to know the latest about both cases, Baby Reyes and the McClure baby. In cases like these, it wasn't uncommon for news to come through reporters quicker than it made it to the cops. According to the Houston Chronicle, the officers would quiz reporters on what they knew or watch one of the two TV sets at the station. While the oil and gas industry in Midland mobilized to find a way to extricate baby Jessica, Raymond Gonzalez and Joe Salvera in Houston were still working to bring baby Reyes home. Sergio and Marina Reyes prayed. They kept on watching the news, and they never heard of of little girl found dead, nothing like that, so that kind of gave them hope. Police had done everything they could to keep baby Reyes' case in the public's mind. They'd sent out alerts across the state and done every media appearance they could. For years, the Chicano squad had made inroads with Latinos throughout Houston and beyond, even serving as a model for officers in other departments interested in replicating their work. They'd invested in building trust with the community in hopes that when the Chicano squad needed the public's help, it would be there. Now, that relationship was being put to the test. Then the phone rang. Another tipster called from just outside of Houston, saying that he might have some information about the missing baby. The caller was a truck driver, he said, and rarely watched TV. But one day, he turned it on just as a news channel was broadcasting the sketch of Ajdi. The girl looked like his niece, and he called her mom, uh, his sister, and he told her, look, look at the news. The driver's sister, who lived in Mexico, was already suspicious because her daughter had returned home with a baby. A baby she hadn't had before. She's like, I know, this little girl is an American girl because we could tell by her clothes that she has on that it's American clothes, you know, so she's not a Mexican girl. The driver gave Joe Salvera a number for his sister in Puebla, just southeast of Mexico City. Joe Salvera called the number. On the other end of the line was an older woman who said that her daughter, who hadn't previously been pregnant, had disappeared and then recently returned home with a baby. Silvera asked, Can you give us a sign or any mo or anything that she will have that you were noticed that it's her? And they're like, yes, she has a birthmark in her right leg. lady said something about a mole on her leg and nobody knew about it. Raymond said that's the detail he and Joe had held back. And with that detail, they knew the tip was real. They had found baby Reyes and her kidnapper, Ajdi Olivia Gil. But their elation at locating the baby soon got complicated. They were told there was no money for the HPD to send them to Mexico and no extradition powers even if they could afford to go. Did they really just track down a kidnapped infant in another country only to be told there was no way to get her back? 
We interrupt our regular program schedule to bring you a special report. The ordeal of Jessica McClure. Baby Jessica. The most famous 18-month-old child in the world. Baby Jessica fell into the well. The eyes, the hearts, the minds of people around the world have been on Jessica McClure. The entire nation held its collective breath. Rescue workers dropped a microphone down into the well, and the world could hear the sound of Jessica softly singing Winnie the Pooh to herself. As long as she was singing, she was still alive. The volunteers and officials had started on the shaft and tunnel, but it was not fast work. An engineer had led the team's efforts using a high-pressured water drill to cut through the dense rock. A full 45 hours after Jessica fell down the well, the shaft and tunnel were finally completed. Half a state away, the spotlight on baby Reyes had faded, but not for Raymond Gonzalez and Joe Silvera. They needed a way to get to Mexico to confirm they had found baby Reyes and figure out how to get her home. But Raymond says the Houston Police Department's budget would not support an international trip like the one the Chicano Squad guys were proposing. Luckily, the squad had spent years building relationships with the community and the media, and that work was about to pay off. They told a reporter at one of the local Spanish stations in Houston about their challenge, and a plan was soon underway. After some negotiations, the station convinced the Houston Police Department to allow them to pay for one of the detectives to go to Mexico and retrieve the baby. And Joe tried to fight for me, but I said, Joe, not worry about him, and just, just go with the mother. The father didn't go either, because they didn't want to pay for the father. In exchange, the station would get a news exclusive. On October 15th, a dozen days after baby Reyes had disappeared, a Spanish-speaking TV crew boarded a flight outside of Houston along with Jose Vera and Marina Reyes. After landing in Mexico City, the trio drove to Puebla. Joe and Raymond had also been in touch with Federales, who'd made contact with the young woman's family in Puebla. Ajdi willingly gave the baby to her mother, who passed her on to the federal officers, who kept her in a station in Puebla for Marina and Jose Vera. There, Marina recognized her baby immediately. But the baby, whose name was Liliana, wasn't so sure. She asked to grab me, and then I like, kind of like rejected her. That's right. Marina's daughter, Liliana, who you've heard from throughout this episode, is baby Reyes. My mom said in her eyes, she felt like that I was mad at her, like, why would you let her take me? So it made her feel so bad. Despite Liliana's initial reaction to her mom, the two quickly rebonded, and it's a bond that's still as strong as ever, over 30 years after Liliana was taken. With mother and daughter reunited, attention turned to what to do with Ajdi, Liliana's abductor. She had stayed home from the rendezvous that day. She had a mental illness, officials were told. In the end, even after all they'd been through, Marida and Sergio decided they would not press criminal charges. The mama had told her, she said that um, she didn't care. She was not going to put no charges. She just wanted me back home. Joe, Marina, Liliana, and their entourage flew back to Houston the next day. But across Texas in Midland, baby Jessica was still trapped, and the suspense grew each hour. 
They'd completed the shaft and tunnel, but no one could predict how long it would take to reach Jessica. A paramedic began to inch his way through the tunnel toward the girl. As Marina, Liliana, and Joe touched down in Houston, Sergio and a small crowd of media gathered. The officers told the family they were planning an award ceremony for the Chicano squad to celebrate baby Liliana's safe return. They ended up canceling it because they had to get another case. That's when she didn't see them for another two weeks after that. As Marina recalled, the detectives were summoned to help out with baby Jessica. Of course, the squad wasn't directly involved with that rescue. But what's really notable is Marina's perception of it. Just days after having her baby returned to her after a harrowing and dramatic ordeal, the attention immediately turned to the story everyone else was paying attention to. Just a few hours after they landed, all three national news networks simultaneously tuned in to Midland. All three major television networks have interrupted their programming in order to carry this. It started out as a simple story. It's ended up being uh, quite a dramatic one. And here it is. Yes. This is it. The pictures are snapping. The crowd is cheering. They're trying to quiet it down as they bring the little girl up. There she is. There she is. She's got a lot of mud and debris. The moment was captured by a local newspaper photographer in a snapshot that won the 1988 Pulitzer Prize. On CNN alone, there were 3.1 million households watching the rescue that night. In a call to Jessica's parents after the rescue, President Ronald Reagan said, Everybody in America became godfathers and godmothers of Jessica while this was going on. After 58 hours, the exhausted girl was rushed to a hospital. She'd lost circulation in her right foot, which had gotten tangled in roots and leaves in the dry well and eventually, one of her toes would need to be amputated. She also had a wound on her forehead. But Jessica, like Liliana, was otherwise perfectly fine. Tons of people donated money to help with her recovery, and a $1.2 million trust fund was created. As she rested, then-Vice President George H.W. Bush, whose daughter-in-law was from Midland, made a campaign pit stop in the town. He visited Jessica at the hospital and met with about 50 of the volunteers who rescued her, thanking them for their work. Baby Jessica's rescue was a media field day. The story of baby Liliana, on the other hand, had faded away into the background. The imbalance of news coverage of white victims, particularly white women and children, when compared to women and children of color, is something the late journalist Gwen Eiffel gave a name to at a 2004 conference for journalists of color. I call it the missing white woman syndrome. (laughs) If there's a missing white woman, we're going to cover that every day. I remember when baby Jessica was a thing. It was huge. Everybody rooted for her. Everybody wanted her saved. I grew up in the 80s. I was a kid, too. You know, we ha- I remember we had the news on all day, and I translated for my mom, who spoke Spanish, no English. And we all pulled for her to make it, including my mom. And narrating this episode, showing a different point of view of a time where another child needed help, and for some reason we couldn't find the resources, was enraging. Honestly. For Jessica, they could come up with an entirely new way to drill down to get to her. While for Liliana... 
They couldn't even find the money in their budget to bring her back. And that's after they found her and knew exactly where she was. Liliana was a little Latina girl born to immigrants. And discovering the discrepancies in this story reminded me of how many times in my life I've had those similar discrepancies. And it was glaring. And what's frustrating is I didn't realize how deep those discrepancies were until I was an adult and started talking to other adults who hadn't shared my experiences, who hadn't grown up like me. And I realized that for some people, our path is just harder. And it doesn't have to be. In Houston, about a month later, Officials hosted a reception with Raymond Gonzalez and Jose Vera, along with the Reyeses and other officers who were integral in the search. Even though the national spotlight had shifted, the Chicano squad officers were on cloud nine. When a child's taken from you and you got no information and you got the whole Mexico country to find out when you see the mother happy, you know, you feel good because, I mean, you found a baby safe. In photographs, the grinning parents and chubby-cheeked baby stand with a proud Raymond Gonzalez. And I got to give the community credit, too, because they trusted us, and they wore our eyes out there. Without them, we couldn't have done it. After the award ceremony, the case was essentially closed. There would be no arrests. But even without a conviction, the case improved other law enforcement officials' opinions of the Chicano squad. I believe the fellow officers, you know, from, you know, homicide, they began to believe in us, I guess. I guess you have to earn your stripes, you know. The Reyes family did get a little money from people who'd seen the news about Liliana and wanted to help. But largely, Liliana was forgotten. Even the reporters from the station that participated in her rescue had disappeared. Yeah, she said she didn't care of them having me on TV, but at least to let people know that they found me and like to report, keep on going with the case because so many people were so worried about me and then for them just to let it go like nothing. To this day, very few records even exist of baby Liliana's kidnapping and return. Even when we provided every possible detail, Houston police could not find a case file for her kidnapping in their records. Baby Jessica would become the subject of Sunday night specials, investigative reports, where are they now pieces, and even a movie. On her 25th birthday, she got access to an $800,000 trust fund. Raymond Gonzalez and Joe Salvera would never forget Liliana Reyes, though. Liliana and her parents even remembered Joe coming over to the family's house for visits after her rescue. Around the age of 12, Liliana grew curious and asked her family what happened to her when she was younger. Her parents explained the kidnapping, and Liliana's grandmother gave her a clipped Houston Chronicle article about her rescue. But eventually, even that record was damaged in a flood. Marina and Sergio Reyes are still grateful to the Chicano squad as they help Liliana raise their grandchildren in a family that's as tight-knit as ever. She said to this day, like, she, she, they did a really good job and she would never forget how good they treated her and did everything for her, that she remembers them by name and face and she even sees them. <laughs> but 
The public's trust in the squad was strong, but it was the squad's trust in itself and each other that would soon be put to the test in a way it never had before. Next time on Chicano Squad. Bobby Gatewood was one of the Chicano Squad's founding members and one of the most promising officers at HPD. Athletic, stylish, charming, and a talented investigator. Bobby was a very flamboyant kind of guy, very well-liked. This guy could have been anything, man. Bobby was also ambitious, and perhaps this is why everything went so wrong. He was just sitting around kind of waiting for a homicide scene to drop. Idle time is evil time. I think that's what happened. For a squad whose success was built upon their reputation for being trustworthy and dedicated to the community, the downfall of one of their own would shake their entire foundation. The informant called me and goes, hey, inside that apartment that they searched, there was $70,000. And I read the report, goes, hey, they didn't find anything in there. And the informant goes, hey, yeah, right. And I go, what? He was stealing money from the Colombians. That's next time on Chicano Squad. En esta ciudad hay necesidad caught in the in-between and swimming upstream Chicano Squad is a production of Frequency Machine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Our producers are Eva Ruth Moravec and Dominique Ferrari. Associate producers are Melanie Rodriguez and Cynthia Bitubiza. Our show was written by Eva Ruth Moravec and edited by Nishat Kerwak and Stacey Book. Engineering and sound design come from Brandon McFarland. Our theme music was composed for the series by Brownout. Fact-checking by Charlotte Silver. Chicano Squad is executive produced by Nishat Kerwak for Vox Media and Stacey Book, Dominique Ferrari, and Avi Glijansky for Frequency Machine. And a special thanks to the Reyes family for sharing their story. I'm Cristel Alonso. If you like this episode and if you think this story is important, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell everyone. Find out more at FrequencyMachine.com slash Chicano Squad. Thank you for listening. I'll see you in Episode 8. <laughs>